When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's not just the revenue growth. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I'm Ricky Mulvey, joined today by Jim Gillies. Jim, good to see you. Ah, it's great to be seen. Thanks, Ricky. So big tech earnings, they're kicking off this week. The show is going out, you know, as Microsoft and Alphabet report. Excuse us for our timeliness. Jim, I know you're not a tech investor and I'm baiting you with that. You but are. is there is there anything you're keeping an eye on from from the mega caps? Okay. I mean, yeah, I, I am a tech investor when it makes sense for me to be a tech investor. We'll put it that way. Uh, you can feel free to ask me about my cost basis in Amazon, Apple, Shopify, Mercado Libre, and I'll leave it at that. Um, or what I did with Apple in late of 2018, 2019, when you were buying the premier cash generating story of our generation for 10 times cash flow. But anyway, what am I looking forward uh, for out of big tech? Uh, basically, I just think it's largely going to be more of the same. I think uh, Amazon looks like uh, they probably have some pop in them uh, coming up. Microsoft will probably continue their excellence. Uh, I know there's some questions about Apple, especially specifically valuation-wise, uh, in, in context of you know the shall we say growth dearth, and uh, you know most more recently it's been uh, you know. The, Valuation ratios have have been elevated versus the growth profile. So I'm interested to see that. Interested to see the uh, the product lines at Apple, uh, how they do in terms of phones, how they do in terms of watch. We kind of forget about the iPad, and then also in terms of uh, their their services. You know, Microsoft, like I said, is probably just going to continue being excellent. Uh, Google, or sorry, Alphabet. Uh, there's some question about um, you know advertising spend as well as you know, there's the will they or won't they antitrust stuff that seems to always be circling around. But largely, you know, these are, for the most part, strong, excellent companies, and we will, uh, you know, we'll probably just see more of the same. I don't, I don't think anyone's opinion is going to be changed by any of the earnings reports from the so-called Magnificent Seven. I will ask you about your cost basis in those companies if you ask me about my cost basis in Unity Software and Lemonade. And the listeners will find out why I am hosting this show and you are offering analysis <laughs> on various companies. Fair enough. I'll tell you one piece of information that did change that that affected my thinking a little bit. It was it was Bill Mann on the Friday show. He made a great point about just how large these companies are. Microsoft is at the point where its market cap is worth four hundred and twenty-eight dollars for every single person on the planet. The Magnificent Seven is now about thirty percent of the US stock market. So for the people who aren't thinking about it, what does this mean for the average investor or you know, how about the people who like to pick stocks? I mean, can open worms everywhere, right? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, there's I got I got some fun little data that I've looked up here and been playing with. The um, 
you mentioned Microsoft and the size. Here is something more. Uh, most people know I'm Canadian. I live just outside of Toronto. The 394 largest Canadian companies, publicly traded companies in Canada, combined have a market value of approximately $2.7 Microsoft is slightly over $3 trillion. So again, yes, it's, it, this truly is pretty insane in terms of, of size and scale-wise. Um, for people who like to pick stocks, honestly, I think you kind of stay away from the Magnificent Seven. And that's going to sound a little maybe crazy, right? I mean, a lot of people are loving the story, uh, specific, specifically about NVIDIA. Uh, Apple's moved a little bit past uh, their, their prime by some people. But you can get all the Magnificent Seven exposure you want, and then some, by just buying a simple S&P 500 ETF. And, and I'm someone that likes, um, that likes a... A portion of my portfolio in index funds because sometimes my style, which I'm very comfortable with, but sometimes my style, any style, is out of favor. And so I have uh, a significant part of my uh, my family's uh, personal wealth in S and P 500 index funds, TSX index fund, and that sort of thing. But but I actually have a case study for you, Ricky. Yes, I, I came today with a case study because here in Canada or as I like to refer to it, Soviet Kanakistan, um, we, uh, we had the largest company by market cap, which was a company called Nortel Networks. And in the summer of 2000, Nortel hit its all-time high price such that its market cap was something like 380 billion Canadian dollars. Okay, To put that into perspective, today, nearly a quarter century later, the largest company in Canada by market cap is the Royal Bank of Canada at 187 billion. So here was good old Nortel Networks at 2x today's largest company. And Nortel has this really interesting factoid about it that it was once the largest company in Canada and it is a zero today. So the danger, if you will, or air quotes danger, of investing in an S&P 500 index fund is you are basically putting one-third, 30% of your money into the Magnificent Seven, effectively, right? We have an example of a company being one-third of the index, roughly, Nortel Networks in Canada in the early 2000s, going to zero, and the impact on index investors and so, essentially, I looked up some data. The TSX, from the start of the data set that I have, which is late 1979, up to Nortel's all-time high in July of 2000, the TSX had returned an annualized 12.6% total return, so dividends included. Okay? That's pretty good. You know, 21 years, 12.6% annualized. Since then it has returned about 8% total because it had to absorb the largest company in the index, almost one-third of the index, going to zero. Now, that's not going to happen with the Magnificent Seven. But you can see how uh, index investors, who are going to hold a lot of the Magnificent Seven stocks, because again, it's about 30% of the index, index investors have a large exposure here and if the Magnificent Seven do take a breather, because a couple of them are um, 
we'll just say richly valued. <laughs> so I'll leave it at that. If or if there's any kind of stumble that causes a revaluation for one or more of them, they could lead to stalling out of index appreciation in the U.S. or you know, S&P 500, which then could have an impact on the long-term returns for investors, specifically index investors. So again, TSX pre-Nortel, 12.5%, 12.6% annualized from 1979 to Nortel's peak. Following Nortel's peak, eh, about 8%. So it does, uh, you know, there is the potential for some muted gains if these stocks do stumble. I want to move on to the flutter listing in a sec, but sure. real quick, I will plug that I think you have a great, uh, great thread or post on X about index investing and essentially the returns and costs associated with index investing versus the famous active investors, including Kathy Wood and Bill Ackman. I will, I'll put a link in the show notes. Sure. There is a gambling company called Flutter. It is making headlines. It's an international sports betting company known in the US for FanDuel, and it joined the New York Stock Exchange on Monday. The shares listed in London pop 20%. We'll talk about the business in a sec, but it, it seems like a really big deal to join the New York Stock Exchange even in even in 2024. Is it? It is. Not to you. Not to me at all, no. <laughs> I don't know why it uh, for for an already publicly listed company to pop twenty percent. I I yeah. kind of view dual listings or even triple listings. I could give you a couple tickers that are you know on multiple exchanges, not just two. It's almost like stock splits, you know, like a stock split. You know, like I I've got one pizza, whether I cut it into two pieces, four pieces, or eight pieces, I still have one pizza. This is the same company. Like that you did not create twenty port twenty percent more economic value by just dual listing this thing. So. You know, I think some of those people may have, or who are buying those shares to to pop at twenty percent, may have gotten over their skis a little bit. But you know, that's their problem, not mine. I'm hoping I can bait you a little bit with the valuation story with this with this company. Stock uh -huh. has solidly solidly beaten the market. It's a it's a highly addictive product, looking to put a casino in every pocket and be climate neutral along the way. Jim is shaking your head for those listening at home, and I want you to tell me if I'm an old codger on this one. The company is still very much in growth growth mode. It has incredible revenue growth numbers of I think something like seventy percent year over year in the United mm -hmm. States, forty percent total for the company. It issues a lot of debt. It also issues a lot of shares. I think it's about 4x its shares outstanding since since 2016. At the same time, it's had trouble growing its earnings per share. So, I mean, what is what is the market thinking about this company? It's 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 been a market beater, but the earnings per share necessarily haven't haven't really grown. Well, I mean, if uh, I mean, you know, if you're an old codger, what am I? So I'm old enough to remember the first round of uh, publicly traded companies trying to to bring people into the internet gambling space, and how basically the morality police basically shut them down and destroyed all the value that was building up. Companies like CryptoLogic, companies like Boss Media. Uh, it's interesting to me that 15, almost 18 years later, I guess uh, the morality police have decided, you know, better off to. To join them rather than trying to put them out of business, I like. I like the story here in terms of uh, their their brands. I mean, uh, I mean, even I've heard of FanDuel. I'm not someone who does a lot of gambling, frankly, because uh, well, because I can do math. <laughs> you know, I, I they do have recognizable brand. That's important in a space which is essentially commodity space. 
And then in terms of you know revenue growth, yeah, it, it is. I mean, if if you have been if you've grown your share count four x over the past seven seven and a half years, uh, yes, of course this is going to impinge your uh, earnings per share growth or anything per share growth. Um, my question, not really knowing this company beyond the the, the branding, um, my question is, what have they spent those shares on? Because in very kind of classic Berkshire Hathaway acquisition mode, if they've if they've spent those shares as part of acquisitions, where they have perhaps you know taken on more value than they've given up in the form of those shares, that can actually be very good, and I got no problem with that kind of dilution. Um, if they've been hosing it to insiders. And it'd be very hard, I think, to forex share count and only give it to insiders. So I suspect there's been some acquisition stuff going there. But just giving it to acquis, you know, it, it'd be a little difficult. A little bit more difficult to 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 love that. But uh, no, I think uh, I think it's interesting. Some of the brands that they have, some of the brands that they hold, uh, Betfair and PokerStars were brands that I saw in that first iteration of the online gaming public kind of thing. So, you know, I think that I can make a case for. For for liking the one, in other in other businesses you have switching costs. In this one, there are switching incentives that you might want to look at. Another thing with the business that I think is worth looking at is that it has about six billion dollars in net debt. The reason it says four point seven on Cap IQ, I think, is because it's listed in British pounds. The interest costs about one hundred and fifty million for the first half of twenty twenty three. It's got the adjusted free cash flow to cover it, but some of that invest some of that debt is not investment grade and it's got a pretty high debt load for a company. You know, is this is this a risk that its investors should be paying attention to? 100%, but you should always pay attention. So it's kind of yeah. that's a layup uh, okay. because you should always pay attention any company that's that's got some debt. You want to see the tenor of the debt, you want to see uh, what's the interest rate, what's the maturity schedule. I'm not too sure what adjusted free cash flow is. Uh, to be honest with you, I'm I'm kind of old school where I um, I like cash flow from operations minus capex is kind of my starting point. Uh, and when we do that, you know, cash flow from operations should include the cash interest on it. But it is um, it is something to kind of pay attention to. And if you if this company is suffering from uh, easy easy switching, we'll put it that way. Um, they might get stuck in that uh, in that pattern where they have to always provide incentive. It's kind of like uh, to the throwback, the Bed Bath and Beyond when they were still alive. You know, they gave you a coupon every week in your mail of twenty percent off, so no one went in without a coupon. This whole industry space may have evolved to a spot where they have to give you constant yeah. incentives because there is essentially no cost of switching. So, um, I, I but I would always pay attention to the debt load because yeah, that's uh, financial risk. Financial risk is a thing. Jim Gillies, thank you for your time and your insight. Thank you. Ricky Mulvey with Motley Full Money here to tell you about a vehicle that is redefining sporting luxury the Range Rover Sport. The first thing I noticed when I sat down in the driver's seat is that I felt like I was in a cockpit. You're up off the ground in a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. I also really appreciated the overhead 360 degree camera view that let me know exactly where I was going as I was backing out of the parking space. I went for a drive in the Range Rover Sport out in Littleton, Colorado, and tested the accelerator just a little bit and felt the performance and agility it's an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. To put it plainly, the Range Rover Sport is powerful. 
It's also quiet and comfortable. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. I'd like to invite you to visit LandRoverUSA.com to learn more about the Range Rover Sport. For the next segment, going to do a quick ad. We talk about a lot of stocks on the show, but it's just a peek at the Motley Fool's investing universe. This year, we're rolling out a new offering. It's called Epic Bundle. The service includes seven stock recommendations every month, model portfolios, and stock rankings, all based on your investor type. We're offering Epic Bundle to Motley Fool Money listeners at a reduced rate, just as a thanks for listening to the show. So, for more information, head to fool.com slash epic198. I will also include a link in the show notes. All right, last week, Robert Brokamp kicked off a conversation with Michael Finca, a professor of wealth management and the director for the Granham Center for Financial Security at the American College of Financial Services. Up next is part two of that conversation, where they discuss the three ingredients of a happy retirement. To a certain degree, we're having this discussion because in America, everyone has to be their own financial planner and investment manager, at least to some degree, especially now that you know fewer and fewer people are being covered by traditional pensions. This also means that we could be managing our own finances well into our 80s and 90s. What does your research show about financial literacy and how it's affected by getting older? Financial decision-making ability is very similar to driving ability. And with the ability to drive, we lose about 1% to 2% of our capabilities every year. There's a problem with that. And one of the problems is that we're a lot worse at it in our 90s than we were in our 60s. The other problem is that it's happened so gradually that we oftentimes don't perceive it. So we've all had this experience of driving with a relative who may be in their late 80s or 90s, and we're sitting there in the passenger seat. And after a block, we realize that we're in the wrong seat. That you know, this is not someone who should be piloting around a two and a half ton vehicle. Um, and we're all piloting our own two and a half ton vehicle when it comes to our retirement savings in our 90s if we don't create some sort of a plan for dealing with this inevitable cognitive decline. It's just a part of getting older. You know, it happens on all of these cognitive tests. We we lose our ability to, and it's not an easy thing to do, to manage an investment portfolio and decide how much we can safely take out every year. I think part of the retirement planning is, is recognizing that that's going to happen to us. And it, to the extent that we can delegate some of that decision-making to someone who is legally required to look out for our best interest or automating income, especially later on in life, makes a lot of sense. I'm a huge fan, by the way, of the criminally underutilized qualified longevity annuity contract, which is a way to take up to $200,000 of your IRA savings and buy yourself an income. And by the way, the rates are really attractive right now, so the quotes are, are pretty good. Buy yourself an income that starts at the age of 85. Then you don't have to worry so much about what's going on in the market before the age of 85. And it's kind of like dementia insurance. You're going to get that income. And there's a tax incentive to do so because you don't have to pay any RMDs on that $200,000. Uh, I am a 
card-carrying member of the QLAC Appreciation Society. There are at least 10 of us now. Um, <laughs> I encourage anybody to join. It's, it's one of those things that economists love, you know, this idea of being able to buy longevity insurance, but it doesn't sound at all appealing to the average person. So I put up $200,000 and I only get it back. I only get to spend any of it if I live to the age of 85. Now, I may get an income of $80,000 a year for the rest of my life. That's pretty cool. But I only get it if I live past the age of 85. Now, practically speaking, it makes retirement income planning a lot easier to um, de delegate that longevity risk to an institution like an insurance company, take it off your plate, and then also automate later life income. So add uh, some follow-up points to that. Um, the evidence is clear that retirees, retirees with higher levels of guaranteed income are tend to be happier in retirement. Um, and you did a study with David Blanchett, which you called, um, I think you called it license to spend, whereas people who had more guaranteed income felt more comfortable spending money because they didn't feel like they had to play it safe because they were worried about outliving their money. Um, and I think you agree that with most people that the best annuity is delaying social security to yes. age 70. In one study you did showed it's even more beneficial for women. Yes. I mean, because women live longer. And it, the best way to think about so delaying social security is that you are buying an inflation adjusted annuity, which really doesn't exist anywhere outside of social security. And that's, that's what you're doing. You're taking some of your savings, you can use it as a bridge strategy. So let's say that I'm 65 when I retire. I want to think about potentially delaying Social Security to 70. Take money out of my IRA, use it to fund my lifestyle for five years. And then at 70, I get a much larger Social Security income payment. It's adjusted for inflation. You know, it really is enough. It's a significant amount of income for a high earner. For many retirees, it's pretty close to enough to cover all of their basic expenses. And then you use your savings for the remainder. Um, and the, the, the reason why it's so attractive is because some of the rules that define how much extra income you get for delayed claiming, those were created in the early 1980s based on mortality tables in the early 1980s and assumptions of after inflation interest rates in the early 1980s. They've changed since the early 1980s, which means that delaying Social Security is more attractive now. And in fact, it's kind of a way of gaming the system. Um, you, you get to buy something at a below market price. You're buying an inflation-protected annuity at a below market price if you use your IRA savings to delay claiming. And, and remember, it is most valuable in the year after the adjustment goes up. So it goes from 5% per year to six and two thirds percent. Um, that'll happen for someone born after 1960 at age 65. If you wait between 65 and 66, if you wait between 67 and 68, again, you get that 8% increase in lifetime income. It is valuable then. It should be just a little bit higher every year, but the government uses a shortcut. They make it 5% for a couple of years, six and two thirds percent for a couple of years, 8% for three years. That is a shortcut, and it makes it most valuable to delay claiming the first year that that rate goes up. When you were talking about what to do with concerns about cognitive decline, you also talked about maybe hiring somebody who has a responsibility to keep an eye on your money. You did a study on financial advice and whether outcomes were better or not, and it, and it looked like it depended somewhat on the incentives of the financial advisor. Well, right. You know, the, the, if, and, and incentives run in many different directions and they're highly complex. Um, you know, when it comes to 
someone who is legally required to look out for your best interest, they're going to be less likely to sell you, for example, a product that maximizes the amount of commissions that they can get. Um, and that becomes especially a problem for older consumers. But at the same time, you may not need someone to manage your money every year. Um, so, the, and, and someone who is paid a fee has a strong incentive not to discourage you from, you know, it's, they don't, they don't necessarily benefit if you're spending down your savings over time. So that's a conflict of interest also in retirement. You know, there's fee only types of advisors where you just pay a fee for a financial plan that tends to minimize those types of conflicts. But, you know, every form of compensation involves a certain type of conflict of interest. I think it's just important to be aware of them. Um, you know, you really want someone that you can trust. You want someone who has figured out some sort of a succession plan, because if you hire them when you're 65, you want to be able to rely on them when you're 95 also. And you want them to, you want to feel confident. And this is something I think it's easier to assess in your 60s than it is in your 90s. You want to feel confident that they're going to be re making recommendations that are in your best interest. And oftentimes it's, it's not easy because, you know, you may in your 90s be tempted to make choices that are necessarily not in your best interest. And it may be important to have an advisor that can help guide you through some of those complex choices to make sure that you don't make mistakes. Let's move on to our last couple of questions here. You've done a lot of research, not only on how to retire, but how to retire well. So what have you found to be the ingredients of a happy retirement? When I run an analysis on retirement satisfaction, what I find is that the predictors cluster into three groups. Well, first of all, money. So it's good to have more money. Second of all, relationships. So positive relationships particularly the most important relationship that we have in retirement is with our primary partner, generally our spouse. Friends also matter. Kids, not so much. Uh, so the relationship we have with our kids is not a significant predictor of life satisfaction, but the relationships we have with our friends are. So friendships are an investment also. You know, they're investments just like health or money. The weekend during our pre-retirement years maintain those friendships as a way of cashing in or making sure that we cash in on them after retirement because they are a source of life satisfaction. And of course, the third one is health. And you know, it is important to think of health as an investment. I, I just read Peter Atiyah's book, Outlive. And one of the things that really struck me about that book was this idea that our ability to process oxygen, our VO2 max, goes down every decade in life. And you have to work to maintain your VO2 max. And when it comes to retirement planning, that's an important thing to remember because let's say you want to go hiking after you retire. You've always wanted to go hiking in Switzerland and Colorado. And so you saved up this money so that you can go on vacations. And then you get there and your VO2 max isn't good enough to go hiking. So you've got to be able to not just save for the vacation. You also have to be able to make investments in your health so that you can combine. Because remember, the money doesn't provide any happiness on its own. It's an input into the production of happiness when you combine it with other stuff like relationships, like health. Um, so remember, money is just green paper. It's just dots on a computer screen. It's the other stuff that you can make an investment in that actually produces the life satisfaction. 
Let's wrap things up with our final question. Is there anything else about retirement planning that you think is underappreciated, but more people should know about? Gosh, um, you know, I, I think friendships are the one that really I did not fully appreciate when I started doing research in this area. So it defines where you want to live when you retire. Do you want to move to the beach? Do you want to move to the mountains? Well, if you have friendships that are really that strong source of life satisfaction, the weather is less important than the activities that you are doing in retirement. Um, so I think the one thing that I did not fully appreciate is to be more, I guess, thoughtful about planning how I'm actually going to live. I think a lot of us who are very quant focused, just think if we have enough money saved, we've got it figured out. But Money, again, money is not what makes us happy. It is our ability to imagine what we're actually going to do and then making investments and putting together a plan that is most likely to result in a satisfying retirement. That's something I think a lot of people just haven't thought enough about. Have you actually sat down and imagined how you're going to spend your time, where you're going to live, who you're going to be interacting with, um, because if you don't do it, you're going to find yourself a bit lost. And I see this a lot among people who retire is, you know, work gave me a lot of stuff. It gave me a lot of opportunities for social interaction. I felt a lot of accomplishment. I was able to do what I was good at. And then I retired without giving enough thought to actually how I was going to spend my time. That's the thing that I think is underappreciated. Well, Michael, this has been as educational as expected. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Ricky Mulvey. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.